Daniel chapter 3. As usual, uh, this will be a longer reading, so I'll just ask you to remain seated. And I'm going to just read the first part of Daniel 3. Uh, We'll look at Daniel 3, 1 through 18 for now. Daniel 3, 1 through 18. This is God's word. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. When you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, and bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, paid no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This ends the reading of God's Word. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, as always, uh, before sitting under Your Word, I'm reminded of our Savior's prayer for his disciples to sanctify them in the truth. So this morning, would you sanctify us in the truth and your word is truth. Show us Christ and his grace remarkably in this story of a burning fiery furnace and three faithful men and a fourth standing with them. 
By the power of your Holy Spirit, transform us by the grace we see in here today into people who know you and follow you faithfully, faithfully in our whole lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I think we have to admit that today's story sounds a little bit foreign to our ears. So let's move the story, or at least the idea, a little closer to home, to the world we live in today. A few months ago, I read a news story out of southern Mexico, which is still a little far away from Virginia, but I used to live in Mexico, so it's a little closer to home for me, and it's our neighbor to the south. So this story uh, out of Oaxaca, Mexico, involved 25 people uh, comprising several families who were kicked out of their village in eastern Oaxaca on account of their faith in Christ. 25 people. These families stood firm and refused to participate in local religious customs and traditions honoring pagan idols. The village authorities uh, kicked them out for not participating. These would have been drunken festivities and rituals that occurred every year, and they said, we are not going to do this. These 25 people, some were children. I remember the photo from the news article. Some were women who were actually wearing babies. And these 25 people are kicked out of their homes. We don't often face circumstances like that, do we? But surely we aren't immune to such things. Surely it could happen. I was thinking as David read our New Testament reading about how some wandered around in caves We just don't know what it is to live that way, but it doesn't mean we never could. There are times when you have to stand firm in the faith. You have to stand firm in your faith and face the consequences for standing firm in the faith. That's kind of what the story of Daniel 3 is all about. I've called this series through these stories in Daniel, these first six chapters of faith, courage, and exile. And I want to look with you this morning at the courage that faith gives these men and the courage that faith gives us as we live in our world, despite words like Nebuchadnezzar and Trigon and Satraps, uh, this story has a lot to teach us today. It's a story about a timeless dilemma uh, that we all will face. All those who have followed the Lord face this dilemma when your faith has to stand firm and face the music. Uh, in the case of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's a long list of music. The horn, the pipe, the trigon, the harp, the lyre, and every kind of music. There will be times when your faith has to face the music too. And the question there is, uh, how are you going to stand firm in these Daniel 3 moments in your life? Uh, so I want to look at three reasons, or maybe three lessons, that we learn in this story about standing firm when faith must face the music. Three lessons. First, you need to know God Uh, You need to love him and know what he requires of you to stand firm. That's the first lesson. You need to love God and know what he requires of you to stand firm. Uh, The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer three, says that one of the two main things the scriptures teach us is what duty God requires of man. It's important to know what God requires of you. And it's more than that, isn't it? Knowing what duty God requires of you and actually doing it are two very different things, aren't they? Are two very different things. That's part of the pressure facing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's, it's telling if you were following along as we read the first part of this story, only three men stand accused in the story. It turns out Nebuchadnezzar only needs one furnace to hold all of the accused uh, of this act of treason. 
a grand total of three in the story. Maybe there were others. Maybe these are the only three named because there were authorities in the land. But again, it's telling that there is this small resistance, this small faithfulness amongst the the exiles in Judah. If Daniel had been around, surely he would have been a fourth. But there's not, there aren't many people standing by faith, and it's probably a sad commentary on the state of Judah's faith in their exile. Uh, verse 7 leaves little doubt that this was um, really a small number of people standing firm, and most of the rest of the Judean countrymen were bowing down. Verse 7 says, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Remember, we talked about those totality lists last week. This isn't just a really rocking band and a whole lot of people. This is this picture of everything standing to one side and a few small faithful standing to the other. So how easy might it have been for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to just go with the flow of infidelity, just give in to what they were surrounded by, just keep it simple, bow the knee, say the words, maybe mumble them, maybe just, if you've ever seen a children's choir, if you forget the words, what do you say? Watermelon, watermelon, watermelon. Just go along with it. Just go along with it. Just like the majority. But these three Hebrew youths had paid attention and their upbringing in Judea. They had been brought up in the law of God. They had been brought up to know what God requires of them. They knew just like breaking a covenant with God in Daniel 1 wasn't an option, they knew that bowing down before a graven image, a golden idol, that was a direct transgression of God's law. We read this in Exodus 20, when God made His covenant with Israel. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up? (laughs) This is exactly what God had told them not to do. It's a no-brainer for them. This is not what we can do. They know what God requires. Yet so did the rest of Judah right? The rest of Judah, where are they? They knew what God required. And that's why I say it's not enough to just know what your duty is. It's not enough to simply know what God requires. Judah had a long track record of abandoning God's commandments, uh, rationalizing it as they did. It's what led them into exile. Everyone else is doing it. Let's just go along. And sadly, Isn't that how we often deal with our own faith dilemmas in the 21st century? We excuse and we rationalize and we come up with all the reasons why it's not that big of a deal to do what's easy or comfortable or convenient instead of doing what God requires of us. We convince ourselves that we don't want to look weird. Sometimes it boils down to that. We just don't want to look weird. Uh, For some of us, it's unavoidable anyway, but we don't want to look weird by choice. So we go along with it. We just decide, you know, I don't want to look weird. We certainly don't want to be called bigots in the news or Bible thumpers by our neighbors. Uh, We don't want to miss out or whatever it is we tell ourselves, right? And we convince ourselves that it's just the way you have to do things to get by living in this world. 
Now, chances are uh, you and I will never be told to bow down to a golden image of a king. Uh, But whenever we take someone or something and we put them on the throne instead of God, that's idolatry. That's idolatry. It's not just a story about standing firm in the face of persecution. Daniel 3 is a story about idolatry. It's a story about loving God no matter the cost and worshiping Him alone. There are a lot of kinds of idolatry in the world uh, today. Uh, Could you name a few if you just think about it? What kinds of idolatry come to mind? Uh, There's superstitious idolatry with pagan priests promising security, wealth, and power for your devotion to the religion. Uh, There's political idolatry with priests of another kind promising wealth and security and power for your devotion to the party. There's consumeristic idolatry promoting security, wealth, and power for your devotion to the marketplace and to the grind. And then there's the scariest kind of idolatry, I think. It's the slow drip of worldly influence. The slow drip seeping into us when we don't even know it's happening. See, idolatry isn't just a relic of the Bronze Age or of the Iron Age. It's a reality in the information age in which we live. We submit ourselves to the influence of the world in which we live, uh, imbibing the world's opinions and values and thoughts. Usually we pipe it in through our eyes, or into our brains, through the screens that we hold in front of us as we surf through channels or as we scroll through the feeds or whatever else. And we slowly soak in the world's values. We're subtly corrupted in our opinions and in our affections uh, by something other than God's Word, God's Word to us, given to us in this book. See, idolatry isn't always dramatic. It's not always uh, an every other kind of music and a 90-foot statue and will you bow down. You can be an idolater by simply absorbing the world's values like a sponge, little by little, one drop at a time. God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Yet you slowly absorb the mentality that it's Sunday fun day. Who needs church today anyway? I need some me time today. You see... (laughs) Thank goodness we're not as selective as that with the rest of the commandments. Do not kill. I just need a little me time today. Uh, It doesn't work that way. But we soak in the world's opinions and values and thoughts, and we're slowly drawn away from our commitment to what God requires. God's law says, honor your father and mother, and by implication, all who are in authority over you. Yet just look at the vitriol every time an election cycle comes around. God's law tells us not to covet, but you live by the motto, he who dies with the most toys wins. These things don't seem like a big deal, but they slowly soak in and corrupt our values, so much so that we don't even realize it's happening. I know I hate how easily I can become a sponge for what the world tells us we ought to do and how we ought to be. I hate how I can be a fish swimming in so much water and I don't even know I'm wet. Remember what these three guys said, though, and it's so powerful. It's almost instantaneous for them. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king, but if not, but if not. You see, we we like to think that we'll have that but if not moment when it comes, like these men. The here I stand, I can do no other moment, like Luther. Um, Be of good courage, Master Ridley, like Latimer, as he and Ridley were burned at the stake in the English Reformation. Um, God opened the eyes of 
uh, the King of England, as Tyndale said, as he was martyred. We think we'll have that moment. We'll say, but if not. But we don't even take a stand now. If we're not taking a stand now, we won't take a stand by faith then, no matter the consequences. If standing before God's law like that puts a pit in your stomach, like it does me, that's the point. That's the point. The law should bring you low if the grace of Jesus is going to lift you up. Sometimes we don't stand firm. Uh, Sometimes the rooster crows three times and we find that we've denied the one who deserves all our allegiance and all of our trust. But Jesus doesn't abandon us when the rooster crows. When the law pierces through the fog in our hearts and we see that we've blown it yet again, uh, we believe that Jesus comes and he asks us those three questions he asked Peter. Do you love me? Not to rebuke us, but to remind us of the tenacity of his love for us. It's that piercing, loving question about uh, your love for God and having an overwhelming conviction of God's love for you that will allow you and make you able to say those words that Daniel's three friends say here. But if not, that's how deep our obedience will go. Even if we're not delivered, our God is able to deliver us. But if not, we're still not going to worship anyone else. Uh, John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. We see an example of that here. So these young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they love God. There's no other explanation. They loved God absolutely in that moment uh, with no reservations, no qualifications. They knew what God requires of his people and no fiery furnace is going to rival their love for God. Could we say the same? Could we say the same? So first, you have to love God and know what God requires of you to stand firm. Secondly, you must have confidence in God's character to stand firm. Confidence in his character Let me ask you an important question. Uh, This this question is important because it requires an honest answer, and those are never throwaway questions. Do you ever find it hard to hold out hope in the middle of the exile we live in, in the middle of earthly life, living by faith and not by sight? Do you ever find it hard to hold out hope that Jesus will come back and make everything right again? Do you ever find that hard? I once read an article by a pastor. He said something so challenging. He said, non-Christians don't pray because they're afraid God is there. Christians don't pray because they're afraid God is not there, and they don't want to lose their faith. Have you ever struggled with that? You know, our faith can be weak, but as Thomas Watson said, even a weak faith may lay hold on a strong Christ. The promises are not made to strong faith, but to true faith. J.C. Ryle put it something like this, even the most wilty, frail flower is still a flower. Faith is still faith, no matter how much of a struggle it may be, no matter how weak it is, the promises are made to true faith. So even in the middle of uh, the Babylonian exile and what seemed like the end of the road for these three men, when everything was against their faith, the totality of the world against them, uh, faithful men in Judah like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, men and women still having faith in the true character of their God, um, they show this faith in at least two ways. I want to look at, look at those with you. They had true faith in, in two ways. I'll put this in the form of a call to you this morning. Uh, two things this story calls you to do. Christian, stand firm by looking with confidence to what God has done. Stand firm by looking with confidence to what God has done. Look back with me at verse 13. Verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. 
Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready to hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not, if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? That's a rhetorical question. It was a threat. It was a really foolish one at that. Uh, maybe this God you dreamed of just a chapter ago who crushes all the kingdoms, remember that God? Maybe that God could deliver us. It's so foolish, right? But Nebuchadnezzar has learned of this statue, and then he builds the statue for everyone to bow down and worship it. I think Nebuchadnezzar gets what's coming to him when we read next in verse 16. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answer the king and say, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, you're a fool. You're a fool, Nebuchadnezzar. We have no need to answer you in this matter. But sometimes you have to answer a fool according to his folly. So they go on and give him an answer anyway. And the first part of their answer looks with confidence to what God has done. With confidence to what God has done. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. They know God is able to deliver them. They know that that's the kind of God they serve. He's delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. In their own experience, he, he delivered them from the test of the king's food in chapter 1. He delivered them from Arioch the executioner, carrying out the king's demands in chapter 2, when all of the wise men in Babylon were to be executed. But they were delivered by their God. They know who their God is. They know he's a God who delivers. He sustained them. He has given them everything they need. And they trust him. So we can look back on a strong God who gives his faith or gives his, uh, he gives protection to his people who by faith are clinging to who he has been in the past. So look at God's track record of faithfulness in your life. Remember what he has done all along the way to deliver you and let that strengthen your trust in him. A second thing though, stand firm by looking with confidence to what God has promised to do. Not just what he has done in the past, but what he has promised to do. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king, but if not. I love those three words. They're powerful words. But if not. They face the prospect of dying as exiles in the foreign world of Babylon. But they have their sights set on what God has promised to do. Hebrews eleven thirteen to 16 which we read earlier. These all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. But they were looking for a better country. 32 to 34 of the same chapter. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire. We might be tempted to say, wow, that is remarkable faith. But it isn't. That's just faith. That's what faith is. That's what faith does. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. That's the promise. So Christians, stand firm by looking back in confidence to what God has done, but also looking forward in confidence to what God has promised 
to do. Is your faith ready to face the music because it's fixed on the faithful character of the God we serve? That's what makes you ready to stand in moments like these. But if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So you need to love God and know what he requires of you. Uh, You must have a strong faith in the character of God to stand firm. And finally, you can count on God's presence with you as you stand firm. You can count on God's presence with you as you stand firm. Look with me at verse 19. I'll go ahead and read the rest of the story quickly. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. The king was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods." Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. They came out of the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies, rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their house laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. I'm not going to talk much about this final part of the ending. It's kind of a repetitive scene. It seems to always involve a promotion, so maybe there's a little bit of hope for us and our faithfulness in that. Things may work out just fine in the end as we stand firm and remain faithful. Uh, But it's interesting how in these early chapters of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar keeps confessing uh, that God is real, but he doesn't really seem to get it. He doesn't really seem to get it. Our friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they come through this trial unscathed, literally, uh, and they're better off than they were before their rivals turned them into the king, uh, wanted to have them burned to a crisp. So what happens here? I want to look at what happens when the arrogant king Nebuchadnezzar peers through the radiating fury of this fiery furnace, and he's so confused. He's astonished, right? They're not consumed by the fire, but not only that, We put three men in the fire. And he sees a fourth walking around, and he says the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Think back with me on the story of Scripture with that in mind. Think back and remember that this wasn't the first time that a king who thought he was God walking on earth uh, tried to stamp out God's people. 
enslaved them, stamped them out. And it wasn't the first time that God had appeared in the midst of a fire to free his people according to the promise. Nebuchadnezzar thinks it's some kind of divine or angelic being walking around with these three men inside the furnace. Uh, But consider this with me. In Exodus chapter 3, do you remember what happens in Exodus 3? Moses is a shepherd out in the wilderness tending to Jethro's sheep, and he sees a burning bush. He sees this burning bush uh, that isn't consumed by fire. That might be kind of strange. I mean, as a shepherd, you've probably seen it all in the desert, but this is something new to Moses. This bush appeared for a very specific reason. Uh, God appears to Moses uh, to declare his faithfulness to his covenant with his people, the covenant he made with Abraham, to free his people from Egypt on the basis of that promise. You know what Egypt is called in Deuteronomy 4.20? But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt. Now the one who spoke to Moses uh, from the bush uh, was the angel of the Lord. This was God the Son appearing before the Incarnation. I'm certain of that because when He speaks, He speaks as the Lord speaks. When Moses bows down before Him, He doesn't rebuke Him. Angels are not okay when people bow down before them and worship them. But that's not what happens. Mere angels would protest, but the angel of the Lord accepts Moses' worship. This is the angel of the Lord uh, accepting Moses' reaction of worship to Him, covering His face, telling Him to remove His sandals because He's on holy ground. This is the Lord appearing to Moses in the burning bush. I think John Calvin absolutely nails it, so I'll read what he says about this scene. What is it all about? The bush is likened to the humble and despised people. Their tyrannical oppression is not unlike the fire which would have consumed them had not God miraculously interposed. Thus, by the presence of God, the bush escapes safely from the fire, as it is said in Psalm 46.1, that though the waves of trouble beat against the church and threaten her destruction, yet she shall not be moved, for God is in the midst of her. Thus was the cruelly afflicted people aptly represented, who though surrounded by flames and feeling their heat, yet remained unconsumed, because they were guarded by the present help of God. I love that picture. Uh, the picture is captured uh, in the symbol of the Church of Scotland. It's what we would call a logo today, but it's worth calling it a symbol because of what it symbolizes. It just showed up one day in 1691 when a printer was printing some records of church business and he stamped this on the cover. It's the picture of the burning bush, and then it says in Latin, Nec tamen consumabator. However, it was not consumed. However, it was not consumed. That's the picture that Daniel 3 holds out to exiles. They're surrounded by the heat of their captivity. It's the picture that it holds out to us. We're surrounded by the suffering that we face in our Babylon today, but however, it was not consumed. You see the fourth man standing in the fire with these three men who are not consumed by the fire, and it's a picture of God's presence, the presence of Christ with us in the midst of the affliction that we face, the suffering we face, the suffering that leads us to doubt and despair. There is a fourth man standing with you. Dale Ralph Davis puts it so well. Davis says, He, Jesus, does not always shield you from all distresses and dangers, but it is in the loneliness, in the betrayal, in the loss, that the fourth man comes and walks with you. He has the knack of both exposing you to, yet keeping you through waters and rivers and fire and operating rooms 
and funeral parlors and an empty house. The fourth man can always find his people. That's why we're burning through these fiery trials all the time, but we're not consumed. The fourth man is with you. The fourth man is with you. And you can take that to the bank to the very last day. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. So the call to you is to stand by faith. Faith, simple faith. Faith in the one who has always been faithful and the one who promises to be faithful. And if you have not put your faith in Christ, come now. Come now to him while there's still time. Love God in him. Know what God requires in him. Confidently trust his character and count on his presence with you. Let's pray together. Father, may our love for you be a bold and brave love with the courage of faith to live in this earthly exile, unwavering in our commitment to worship you and you alone. Teach us what we must do. Grow our confidence in your character and help us to always know and enjoy the fellowship and the fearlessness that your presence gives. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.